we live in a selfie world. Look at what I did today. Look at who I was with tonight. Look at what I ate today. Look at what I accomplished this week. Look at my awesome kids. Look at my awesome spouse. Look at my awesome church. Look at my awesome life. Look at my, look at my, look at my. We live in a selfie world not primarily because of innovative technology or social media programs or convenient apps, but because of something much more natural and much more powerful. We live in a selfie world because we have selfie hearts. The human heart is hardwired on self. To be consumed with self, to exalt self. Now listen to me, the human heart is hardwired then for pride. If you want to follow though in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus, I want to give you one spiritual principle right off the top this morning that you need to always remember. And that is this, is that pride is your worst enemy and humility is your best friend. Pride is your worst enemy. Humility is your best friend. What, what is the definition of pride? Pride is the mindset of self. It is a focus on self-worth. It is a pursuit of self-glory. It is a desire to control all things for self-advancement. But you see, deception is at every turn for us when it comes to pride. I've been, I've been doing ministry for 20 years. And in 20 years, I have sat with countless of people who are going through problems. Marriage problems, parenting problems, family problems, money problems, job problems, uh, anger problems, drug problems, alcohol problems. I've seen just about everything. Sometimes I have met with people and I felt like I'm, I'm in a movie right now. This is, this is so grandiose of the problems. But in 20 years, how many times do you think that I have sat down with somebody who had a problem and they said to me, I have a pride problem? Never. Not one time have I had a person sit down with me and say, I have a problem with pride. And let me tell you, more times than not, the money problem, the family problem, the marriage problem, the anger problem, is a problem of pride. You see, pride is deceptive. It's blinding. It, 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 we don't even see it in ourselves. That's why Thomas Watson said, pride is spiritual drunkenness. It flies up like wine into the brain and intoxicates it. Now, I want you to know that pride 
has a lot of diversity to it. All right, because if you are angered by criticism, that's a form of pride. If you are unteachable, that's a form of pride. If you are sarcastic and hurtful toward people in conversation, that's a form of pride. If you're lazy, that's a form of pride. If you are unmerciful to people who are struggling, that's a form of pride. If you shift blame from yourself to anybody else, that is a form of pride. If you complain against or pass judgment on God for your circumstances, that is a form of pride. If you see yourself better than anybody else, anybody, that's a form of pride. If you're focused on your lack of gifts and your lack of abilities, so much so that you have a woe is me attitude, I'm, I'm not good enough or I'm not this or I'm not that, that is a form of pride. If you're too talkative, if you talk too much, not only about yourself but about anything, that's a form of pride. Pride is a killer. It kills worship. It kills marriages. It kills families. It kills churches. It kills communities. It kills countries. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is proud in heart, listen to this, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. I think that's why John Piper has said, in our proud love affair with ourselves, we pour contempt on the worth of God's glory. Now, on the flip side, humility, what is it? Humility is the mindset of Christ which is a servant's mindset. It's a focus on God and others. It is a pursuit of the recognition and the exaltation of God. It is a desire to glorify God and please God in all things, in your heart, in your mind, in your speech, in your life. And I want to tell you something. While, while pride is deceptive, Humility is holy. It is pure. This week I had a man who has a job, who has a wife, who has many children, and lots of responsibilities volunteer to help me with a problem on my vehicle. And he spent two and a half hours fixing my vehicle on his one day off Voluntarily, without cost. And I was so taken by that, probably because I was studying Philippians 2, 1-11 at the time. I said, man, what, what made you want to do that? And this guy said, I don't have a lot of skills. But the skills that I do have, I want to leverage to glorify God and bless the people in my life. That is humility. And listen, he didn't tell me how he was a nobody. He didn't, he didn't down talk himself to me. What did he do? 
He looked at somebody else. He looked at whatever skills and talents that he has and he wanted to leverage them to bless people. That is a picture of the purity, the holiness of humility. If you trust God's character and His promises, that's a form of humility. If you understand that you have no right to question God or to complain to God, that's a form of humility. Listen to me, church. If you pray... That's a form of humility. If you are grateful and thankful to others, no matter how small or how big the thing that they did for you is, that is a form of humility. If you see yourself as no better than others, that's humility right there. If you are obedient to those in authority, that's humility. If you have a teachable spirit, That is humility. If you seek to build others up with no hidden agenda to get something that you really want for yourself, that is humility. If you minimize the sins of others, but maximize your own sin, that's humility. If you're genuinely glad for the success of others, that's humility. If you're open and honest about who you are and the areas in which you need growth, that is humility. And listen, listen. just as pride has its inevitable end, which is destruction, humility also has its inevitable end. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and He will exalt you in due time. He will lift you up in due time. In the time that He has ordained. In the time that He has sovereignly orchestrated. Please listen to the words of C.S. Lewis. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that he is a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Let's pray and then we'll study Philippians 2, 1-11. Dear Heavenly Father, as we look on the holy pages of Scripture and behold Your Son this morning, we ask You to do a powerful work inside of our hearts. Stagger our minds with the condescension of Jesus Christ this morning. Stun our hearts with the love of Christ. Deepen our understanding of the depth of the humility of Christ and woo us, draw us into a love of His humility, a desire for His humility, a passion for His humility that we may be like Him. For Your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're not already there, please turn to Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. 
Philippians 2, 1 through 11. The title of the message is, To Know Him Through Humility. As you might have guessed. To Know Him Through Humility. If we wanted to kind of tease it out a little more, it would be to know Him through beholding His humility and becoming like Him in His humility. To know Him through emulating His humility. We are on holy ground this morning in this passage. It's almost like when God told Moses to take the sandals off of his feet because he was on holy ground. The Apostle Paul tells the church at Philippi. The Holy Spirit tells the church at Redeemer. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look, not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you. The fact is, I would love to break this passage up into three sermons. And there certainly can be a, a time and a place to do that. But if you will look down at the text, you will see this is one literary section with one spiritual point. And I want you to see that. I want you to take note of a few things. First of all, take note of the word mind. Look in verse 2. You see the word mind twice in verse 2 and then again in verse 5. And what does Paul do? He connects the mind of the Christian to the mind of who? Christ. He connects the mind of the Christian to the mind of Christ such that there should not be a difference. I want you to note the second thing, humility. Look at the, the, the phrase in humility in verse 3 and then humbled himself in verse 8. Same word, same root word. One, though, a noun. The other, a verb. Same word. 
And Paul connects the character of the Christian to the character of who? Christ. And then I want you to note in verse 3 the word count. Count. And then again in verse 6, the verb count. Paul connects the decision-making of the Christian to the decision-making of who? Christ. This is one section. This is one passage. And Paul wants Christians to have the same attitude, the same mindset, the same decision-making as the Lord Jesus Christ. What a calling. So, I don't want you to be guessing this morning. I don't want you to... To, to, to wonder, I'm going to go ahead and give you the big idea. I want to give you the, this is the point of the text. And this is it. Have the mindset of humility. And live a life of humility. Because your exalted Savior has set the ultimate example of humility and empowers you to do the same. I'll say it two more times. Have the mindset of humility and live the life of humility because your exalted Savior has set the ultimate example of humility and empowers you to do the same. So have the mindset of humility and live the life of humility because your exalted Savior has set the ultimate example of humility and now empowers you to do the same. That is the message of Philippians 2, 1-11. And so, if you were to ask me, Chris, if you were to ask me, but what is Paul's goal in Philippians 2, 1-11, this is what I would say. It is to produce authentic humility in the church of Jesus Christ to produce authentic humility in the church of Jesus Christ. And in producing authentic humility, what, he would, what would be produced is harmony and love and grace and mercy, so much so that Jesus Christ would be magnified not only inside the walls of the church, but in the community, in the region, and in the world. And so... Paul walks us through the process of putting on humility right here. And for you note takers, I'll go ahead and give you the structure and then we're going to walk through the passage, okay? The structure is this. The priority of humility, the pattern of humility, and the pinnacle of humility. The priority, the pattern, and the pinnacle. The priority, the pattern, the pinnacle. The priority, the pattern, the pinnacle. And so let's look first at the priority of humility in verses 1 through 5. Paul says first, make me a happy shepherd. That's what he says. Make me a happy pastor. You're like, Paul, that seems awfully selfish. <laughs> But look, the only direct command in, in all of 1 through 5 is complete my joy. That's the only command that's just directly an imperative from the text. Second person plural imperative. Complete my joy. Make me happy. And he, he's just saying, 
I want to be a happy pastor, a happy shepherd, somebody who just rejoices all the time. And so this is what, this is what I need you to do. I need you to be humble like Christ is humble. And so he starts off, though, by giving the basis of really how humility can be accomplished. If you look down at verse 1, he says, So if, if there is... I want you to know that the essence of what he's saying there is not maybe you have this or possibly if some of you might possess these things. No, the idea is since you have it. Because you have it. What, Paul? What do we have? Because you have encouragement in Christ. Like you've got the consolation of being saved by Jesus Christ. You've been delivered from death and hell and darkness, and you've been rescued into light and life and beauty and glory through the powerful work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And because you've been delivered by Christ, and now because you know Christ, then you can be humble. All right? And he says, if you have any comfort from love, like if you have consolation in the fact that no matter what you do, no matter where you go, no matter how you fail, no matter how much you trip up, God loves you in Jesus Christ, and He's never going to give up on you. He's never going to forsake you. He's always going to advocate for you and mediate for you, and He's going to be at the right hand of God on your behalf forever until you are brought fully to Him. So if there is consolation in the love of Christ, since there is what participation in the Spirit, Paul would say the Spirit of Jesus Christ has come into your heart. He has filled you. He has sealed you. He is indwelling you right now. The Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead not only is yours in position, it is yours in experience. And because you have that, you can be humble. Hallelujah. And he says, if you have any affection and sympathy. In other words, if you know the tender love of a good shepherd if you know the compassion of a shepherd, that though you were going astray, and though you might have been the only one out of the flock of a hundred, that shepherd came to you right before you fell off the cliff to your doom, and he swooped you up and brought you back into the fold. If you have that, and I know you have it because you have the gospel, then you can be humble. See, that, that's the basis of humility. The basis of humility is that you've received the gospel, that you know the love of Christ, that you know the shepherding, tender affection of Christ. Paul is not saying to the world, hey, you guys, y'all guys out there, I wish y'all could be more humble. Hey, President of the United States, hey, hey, uh, uh, Congress and Senate and lawmakers, and uh, y'all be humble. Paul's not saying that to them. Why? Because they don't know the affection and tender mercy and saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he's telling us to be humble. Why? Because we've experienced the powerful love of a humble Savior. Okay, so he, he's saying, make me a happy shepherd. Because this is what he's saying. I am most happy when the people of God are most like Jesus Christ. So make me happy by being like Jesus. Now he says, this is how you do it. You're the same mind. You have the same love. You're in full accord and of one mind. And some of you are like, how is it that the church is supposed to be so, so unified? How is it that we're supposed to have this? I thought we were all uniquely and wonderfully created, Psalm 139. 
How is it we're supposed to have one mind, one heart, one accord, and all of that? I mean, one of those words literally means one-souled. When it says full accord, it means to have one soul, joined together in soul. Church, how is it that we can be so united even though we're all so uniquely made and, and, and uniquely gifted? How can we be a one soul? How? Through the G- Lord Jesus Christ, that's right. And because we all have the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's right. And so the, the spotlight is always on Christ in your mind and in your heart. And so no matter whether you work a job from 8 to 5, Monday through Friday, or whether you're at home with your children, or whether you're out uh, traveling about in the southeastern part of the United States, no matter where you are or what your station in life is, the church can be of one mind and one heart and one soul because we have one ambition. And what is that? To glorify Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. He said, so make me a happy shepherd by having the encouragement of the gospel and having Christ in the centerpiece of your heart. And so now he says, this this is what I really want you to start doing. Stop doing and start doing. That's what he says. Stop staring in the mirror. Stop staring in the mirror. Look at the first part of three and the first part of four. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Let each of you look not only to his own interest. He gives that negative command to start off with in each of those first verses right there. Selfish ambition or conceit, guys, that means empty glory. In the original, it's a compound word. Empty plus glory. And that's what you and I need to understand about pride. Now, this is the deal. None of us considers, our, considers ourselves prideful. We just don't. Now, you can show false humility right now and say, well, I don't think I'm prideful. You know, I'm, I'm really... No, no. None of us look in the mirror and say, I am a really prideful person. We just don't do that. But this is the thing. We are. We are because pride is deceitful. But this is what he's saying. That in your seeking glory in your seeking self, in having this selfie mentality, you need to know that all of that glory that you're trying to heap on yourself is worthless. It is empty. It has no value. It's empty glory. And, And the thing is, is that it terminates in hell. And so... Stop staring in the mirror. I think it was C.S. Lewis or John Piper or one of those kind of great theologian philosophers who said it is the humble person who doesn't look in the mirror and say, boy, I'm just a really nobody. I'm just not that great. I don't have a lot of worth. I'm I'm not good. No, that's not the humble person. The humble person is the person who stops looking at the mirror and puts his eyes on other people to serve them, his mindset toward other people to help them, his heart toward other people to bless them. So he says, stop staring in the mirror. And then he says, start prioritizing other people. He says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. He said also, look to the interests of others. And this word humility, it, it literally means lowliness. Now this word count, this is so significant. This word count, in its, in its root form, in its kind of noun form, means leader, 
chief head. Leader, chief head. But when it's used as a verb in this metaphorical sense, it means to lead out with the mind. To lead out with the mind. So he's saying count others more significant than yourselves. He's saying lead out in your mind what is first, what is foremost, what is chief in your mind is that other people are more significant than you. Now church, that's critical because this is the way we're tempted. We know our, we're Christians and we want, to, we want to be Christians and we want to live like Christians. And so we're going somewhere to be around other people and sometimes we think to ourselves, now remember that at some point I'm going to need to do something for somebody or I'm going to need to say something to help somebody. Church, this is the thing. Paul is saying, don't fake it. Don't pretend it. Don't think in the back of your mind you probably should do something for somebody today. He's saying that in the forefront of your mind, the leading thought that you have, the, the whole concept of what it means to live every day is to consider other people's goals and ambitions and needs and desires as more significant than your own. Wow. Whew. Yeah. And so, start prioritizing other people. And then he says, put on the mind of Christ. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he says, make me a happy shepherd, stop staring in the mirror, start prioritizing other people, and put on the mind of Christ. And this is the deal, church. He's not telling us to do something that we cannot do because he says, it is yours in Christ. And I say this phrase a lot, and I'm going to continue to say it a lot. But the same Spirit that gave Jesus the power to resist temptation in the wilderness against Satan himself, and the same Spirit that gave Jesus the ability to obey His Father 100% and honor His parents unequivocally, and to love people who hated Him, and to go all the way to the cross, and to be buried, and then the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same Spirit that you now possess in your heart, in your life, and in your mind. So He's not telling you, you can't do it. He's telling you, you can do this because you have Christ. So put on the mind of Christ. That's the priority of humility. Make me a happy shepherd. Stop staring in the mirror. Start prioritizing other people and put on the mind of your Savior. And we see the pattern of humility. The pattern that He gives. The pattern is none other than the Lord Jesus. And this is what Paul is essentially saying. Jesus had the most humble mindset. Jesus had the most humble mindset. Though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Keep your eyes down on the passage. Though He was in the form 
of God. That word form, don't get confused by it. It doesn't mean that somehow he was like a, a great replica of God. It wasn't the real thing, but it was kind of really close. That's not what the word means in the original. The word form means essential nature. Essential nature. Though he was in essence God, though he had the same nature as God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. That word equality, it's where we get our mathematical term iso. What is an isosceles triangle? It has equal sides. Equal sides. Same exact distance between each point. Here's the word iso. He was equal with God. He was the same in quality, in quantity, in greatness, and in glory. But He did not consider His quality and quantity and greatness something to be held onto and seized. That word literally means to rob, to be a thief, to rob it, to hold it on, to seize it close to your chest and you're not going to let it go. This is what Jesus says, in my mind, I'm not going to consider my equality with God something that I'm going to hold dearly to. I'm not just going to, I'm not going to squeeze it where my knuckles are white and no matter that the Father's trying to, to, to take it away or, or no matter what happens to me, I'm just going to seize and hold on to it no matter what. No, this is what Paul is saying. His mindset, his mindset is, I'm not going to consider the rights and privileges and powers and visible eternal glory something that I'm going to just hold on to. He had a humble mindset. And then Paul says, he lived the most humble life. Look at verse 7 and following. He emptied himself. He emptied himself. That's exactly what it means. It means to empty, and you, you say, okay, well, now that's where a lot of divergent, quote-unquote, Christian theologies uh, get, their, get their ideas from. You see, some say, well, Jesus wasn't, uh, God, He was man. And some others say He was man, but He wasn't God. And, and they get all of this. Listen, if you ask the question, how did Jesus humble Himself? How did Jesus empty Himself? Look at the text, church. Look at the text. Be a Berean right here. If you ask the question, how did Jesus empty Himself? What's the answer? He took on the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. He was found in human form and He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. That's how He emptied Himself. So, listen, church, I know that it, it might seem paradoxical to, paradoxical to you, but the way that Jesus emptied Himself was not by saying, I know I'm God and I'm giving up my godness and I'm going to leave it in heaven. No, the way He emptied Himself was to to even though He was God, coming to earth and taking on human flesh and becoming a literal servant, a slave who has no rights and meets the needs of other people no matter how harsh they are, no matter how callous they are, no matter how idolatrous they are. 
This is what it means to empty himself. It is to take on humanity and become a servant. So he lived the most humble life because he takes on the form of a servant. It is the likeness, the, the, the essence of a servant. Let's just, let's just pause a moment and let's meditate on the humble life of our Lord Jesus. Jesus created all things. Jesus made trees and water and mountains and land and grass and animals and everything that exists. He made it all. And He over saw it all and sustained it all up until the point that He is commissioned and sent out by His Father. And then He is born essentially in a barn for animals. Surrounded by the very things that He created. And is subjected to sinful parents and is subjected to sinful leaders who want to kill Him, and is subjected to jealous neighbors, and is subjected to self-righteous, pharisaical religious leaders, and is subjected to envious people who try to kill Him, and He is subjected to the hatred and violence of people who want to have their own way and exist for vain glory, empty glory. Jesus subjected Himself in every turn of His life. He had the most humble life one could possibly have because He had existed in eternal glory and comes down in servitude to you and me. And it terminates at death. But that's what I want us to see finally under this section is that He died the most humiliating death. Notice He says, by becoming obedient to the point of death, and He doesn't just stop there. What does He say? Even, Even death on a cross. He died the most humiliating death. And I, I use the word humiliating rather than humble to understand the reality, the gravity of it. The word humiliating means embarrassing. It means mortifying, shameful, demeaning, degrading, crushing, dishonoring. That's what humiliating means. And that's the kind of death that Jesus died. It was crushing. It was defeating. It was demeaning. It was dishonoring. But He humbled Himself to the point of a humiliating death. Can you just picture it? And if you're comfortable with just closing your eyes for a moment, just to envision Jesus, the King of glory, the eternal Son of God, the Creator and Sustainer of the universe, the second member of the Godhead, 
is whipped. He's beaten. He's spat upon. He's slapped. He's punched. He's ridiculed. He's mocked. He's stripped. He's ushered to the top of a hill where a crowd is gathered hurling insults at him. Nails are in his hands and in his feet. A crown of thorns is pressed into the flesh of his head. The crowds have been crying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. In other words, he is not worthy of an honorable death. He is not worthy of a citizen's death. He is only worthy of a humiliating, debased, shameful, disgraceful death. Put him up on that cross. And Jesus, all the while, could at any moment have taken Himself down from that cross. Which is why Paul tells us He emptied Himself. He humbled Himself. He's up on the cross. Voluntarily, willingly, dying the most shameful, the most disgraceful death imaginable. Why? Because he did not regard equality with God something to be held on to, but had the mindset, the leading thought of a servant. Jesus is demonstrating to us the pattern of humility because He had the most humble mindset, He lived the most humble life, and He died the most humiliating death. But that's not the end of the story. We see finally the pinnacle of humility. The pinnacle of humility. It, I, I think that the world has done a great injustice to their own understanding of Jesus because when they, when they think of Jesus, they think of Him only and singularly on the cross. I think that's why an entire religion, which is huge in this world today, wears crosses around their neck and puts them on the wall with Jesus still on the cross. That's the way the world thinks of Jesus, as still on the cross, but that's not where Jesus is. His position is now exalted. His name is now unrivaled. His praise is now universal. His Father is glorified and will be glorified ultimately and finally. Look, therefore God has highly exalted Him. That word means super exalted Him. Has given Him high, high, high exaltation. His position right now is exalted. He is raised from the dead. He is ascended into heaven. He is the right hand of the Father. And He has glory right now. His position is exalted. Look at the second part of verse 9. His name is unrivaled. God has bestowed on Him, that is, graced on Him, the name that is above every name. His name is unrivaled. And we ask the question, well, what name is that? Listen, theologians are a little bit of a... It's an in-house, 
It's a little in-house conversation, a little in-house argument in that is it the name of Jesus or is it the name Lord? You can make the argument from the text that it's Jesus and you can make the argument from the text that it is Lord. But if you read the Old Testament... And and passages like Isaiah chapter 45, which talks about the name of Yahweh, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. I will tell you that I believe what Paul is essentially saying is that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That is, that He is Yahweh. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is the, the, the manifest presentation of, of I am. So, I don't think that we have to argue about it. I think we're all going to say, Jesus, Yeshua, is Lord. Yahweh! We're going to say that. His name is unrivaled. His praise is universal. Church, this is the reality. In verses 10 and 11, this is the reality. That every single person, I think tongue represents person, every person who has ever lived Every person who has ever lived will bow their knee and their tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every person. Now some will do it because it is mandatory. Some will do it even though they have resisted that fact and rejected that fact for the entirety of their lives. Others will do it because they have given their lives to Him. And their hearts beat in cadence with Him. And when that time comes, there will be smiles on their faces and happiness in their heart. And they will say, Jesus Christ is Lord! He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is precious. It's a boring church service. But you know, some will say, He is Lord. He is Lord. He is the Son of God. I'm hopeless. And they'll be condemned forever because they rejected Him when they had the opportunity to receive Him. Church, make no mistake about it. Pride and humility is not this little thing that you can just kind of work on and tinker with in your life to try to tweak it to get a little better. Kind of like that old car you've got in your garage that you kind of go out and and tinker with a little bit and over a period of a few years, and you get that thing to shape enough to get it out and run it with it a little while. Pride and humility is a matter of life and death. Pride and humility is a matter of idolatry and worship. Pride and humility is a matter of condemnation or glorification. I don't care what the world is doing out there. 
I don't care what's going on on Facebook or Twitter or CNN or Fox News. Or I, I don't care what's going on. All I know is that what is significant is that what's inside right here. It's all that matters. And we are making the biggest mistake of our lives if we think that pride is a little thing. Paul calls us to humility. Not by merely saying, Be humble, church! Be humble! Think about some people every now and again and do a nice thing for some people every now and again and you'll show yourself to be a part of God's people. No. No, he's saying, Be humble as your Savior was humble and did not regard equality with God something to be grasped and held on to, but took the form of a servant coming in the likeness of men and humbled Himself and counted it just nothing to be in the form of a slave all the way to the point of dying the most humiliating death in the history of mankind. Take on that framework and you can be humble. And you can be named among the people of God who will give glory to Him forever and ever. Bow with me. Please concentrate right now. Please concentrate. Because if you're asking how do I respond to this text, I want you to know that the proper response is not to stop taking selfies. I mean, you may need to stop taking some selfies. But that's not the proper response. The proper response is to root out a selfie heart. Get rid of a selfie heart. Mindset. Put on today the mind of Christ. Meditate on the mind of Christ today, right now. Meditate on the humble life of Christ. Meditate on the humiliating death of Christ. Meditate on the glory of Christ. Behold your Savior right now. See Him in the most paradoxical form of glory the world has ever seen. See Him on the cross. He said in the garden, Father, glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You. And how does He do it? He walks the path to the cross. Church, what if we are a people who walk the path of the cross every day until we see our Savior? That is the picture that Paul wanted to see in Philippi. And that's the picture the Holy Spirit wants to see in the friendship community. May God grant us power and humility to do it.